Welcome to Byline Confidential, a podcast where we talk with journalists about their lives, their work, and their careers. I'm Greg Pratt, reporter in Chicago, and I will tell you right out, I am a man who likes to talk to a man or woman who likes to talk. And this week, I'm talking to a very special guest, Phil Cadner of the Daily Southtown, who after, what is it, 37 years? No, 37. 37 at this paper is going to be taking a buyout and retiring. Uh, retiring may be premature. I haven't decided what I'm going to do next. So I'm taking a buyout on January 15th. Uh, will be my last day, but I haven't decided what comes next. I'm sure you'll still be raising hell somewhere. I, I, I have no clue. So is that 37 years total in the uh, news business, or is that just at the South Town? That's 37 consecutive years at the South Town. There was another year nobody ever counts that uh, when I graduated college, I came to work for the South Town for about uh, a year and a half. Uh, back then it was a twice-weekly paper, and I worked for them for about a year and a half. Went into public relations at Ingalls Hospital for about a year and a half. Uh, Got a phone call from one of my old editors at the South Town saying the South Town was going daily. The Chicago Daily News had just folded. And uh, he asked me, told me, I think you'd really like to be a daily newspaper guy. Would you like to come back? And I, I did. Uh, two, two questions on that. One is a stupid question. Uh, how many names has this paper gone through since you've been there? Oh, uh, well, when I came, it was the uh, Southtown Economist, which also had, that was the, in the, that circulated in the city of Chicago, South Side. Uh, it also had the Suburbanite Economist, which covered Oak Lawn and some other South Suburbs. Uh, and uh, it, then it became the, uh, the Daily Southtown, Southtown Star, back to the Daily Southtown uh a lot of the old folks, uh, it was original name before I started, was just The Economist. And a lot of old folks call it that still. Yeah, I'll get emails about that sometimes. Uh, which was confusing because there's a famous paper called The London Economist. Uh, but, uh, it, yeah, a lot of different names. Uh, the, the serious question there is, uh, why'd you leave journalism for PR in that first... Uh, I was disappointed in uh, some of the things that I was involved with uh, at the old uh, at the twice weekly paper. It really wasn't what I had envisioned doing, uh, and uh, I thought maybe uh, public relations, uh, the money, a different kind of lifestyle would be attractive. And I'm glad I did it because I found out no, uh, the, even though it was more money and. Uh, a much more relaxing uh, sort of lifestyle. Uh, I, I, it wasn't for me. I, I'm an old ambulance chaser, and uh, newspapers is what I love to do. So it was a good thing because I found out that this is this is what I really want to do. What did they have you doing that first stint at the? Uh, I was a general assignment reporter, which meant for the old Southtown Economist, you covered civic organizations. Uh, that was our bread and butter at the time. Uh, so I covered the Beverly Area Planning Association, uh, the Mount Greenwood Civic Association, the Ashburn Civic Association, the uh, Wrightwood Civic Association. Uh, so it's, it's a very different kind of reporting that anybody 
who covers Metro Chicago News ever does, because uh, these are not elected officials. These are not full-time employees. These are all homeowners, moms and dads, who at night get together for meetings and, uh, and try to do things for their neighborhoods. So uh, it's a much different kind of culture, and it's all night meetings, which if you cover the suburbs, you get used to, but it's much different for anybody who might be used to Chicago. Uh, so that, that's, that's what I did. I covered community organizations and, uh, and talked to a lot of community leaders who, again, are just, uh, these are just people living in their communities in Chicago who are trying to make them better places to live. Was that boring for you or something? No. Yeah, it was a lot of excitement at a lot of different times. Uh, uh, Beverly Area Planning Association at the time, uh, Beverly was undergoing a racial change. Uh, there was a lot of white flight, so BAPA, uh, BAPA, was on the cutting edge of uh, of trying to maintain uh, a mixed-race neighborhoods instead of doing block-by-block -block racial change had occurred in Chicago throughout many neighborhoods. And so that was kind of a cutting-edge thing, and it was very interesting to watch, and they were very successful at it because the... Uh, the area is very racially mixed today, and they stabilize the area. Uh, so that was interesting. Uh, in the Ashburn Civic Association, uh, the the fight there was uh, there was racial desegregation of the schools going on at that time. Uh, the city was pretty much divided into all black schools, all white schools, and the thought was if you could bus black children into the white neighborhoods they would not only get a better quality of education, uh, but you would encourage racial harmony throughout the city. Uh, that was something that was going on in several major cities at the time throughout the country. And uh, the uh, white people in these neighborhoods were very resistant to that. Because it meant neighborhood schools were very important to them as they sent their kids to the nearest school. Uh, what this busing meant was that not only would children get bussed in from outside the neighborhoods, but ultimately children would have to be bussed out of their neighborhoods, and they were very resistant to that idea. Uh, there was a lot of racism involved, no doubt about it. And it was very interesting and very challenging. Is uh, I felt my duty was to report the facts. I was a reporter, and uh, not to make judgments, and uh, try, try to stay fair and that often resulted in criticism from all sides. Yeah, well... But it wasn't boring. That was your original question. No, it was very... I found it very interesting. I, I think like any reporter, you, if you're a good reporter, uh, you get involved and you start caring about the subjects you're writing about. And uh, and so, no, I, I felt very connected. So I didn't feel bored about by that at all. I agree. I mean, if, if you're... Uh... You know, obviously some 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 ground is more fertile than others, right? But yeah. but there's always interesting stories right. that we had. Uh, Marquette Park was another area we covered, and at that time there was a very active neo-Nazi group. Uh, they eventually made national headlines by trying to stage a march through Skokie, uh, but they would almost every summer uh, stage marches uh, through Marquette Park. Uh, in turn, black groups would stage marches, counter marches. There was a lot of there were violent clashes uh, between those two groups, uh, and uh, sometimes thousands of people were involved uh, in these marches. 
so that also was a, a very interesting time to cover that. Did you ever get, were you ever there uh, during one of the clashes? Oh yeah, several of them, yes. In fact, I, I, I've told this story many times to uh, friends and colleagues that we had a reporter named Larry Roll, a photographer named Larry Roll, who was one of the greatest photojournalists I've ever met. And there was this large march of uh, black people marching for open housing into Marquette Park. Uh, hundreds of people involved. They were surrounded by, uh, guarded by probably more than 100 Chicago police officers at the time. As they approached the Marquette Park area, uh, there were thousands of people lined up along the streets, very angry people carrying white power signs. And as they neared Marquette Park, uh, people began throwing bottles, bricks, uh, rocks, whatever they could find. I was uh, marching alongside the marchers at that time to, as a reporter, just covering them, talking to them. And uh, when all the stuff started flying, I took off running uh, for shelter. Couldn't find any. And uh, I turned back at one point. Uh, and uh, there was Larry Rule, the, our photographer, uh, standing back to back with a photographer from the Tribune, whose name I do not know. I'm sorry to say. And they were stars, they were positioned each of them between the black marchers, civil rights marchers, and the anti the white power white crowd. Around them was piled up a good foot to two feet of debris, broken glass, rocks, all kinds of stuff. And they were standing there back to back, getting pelted with the stuff, just shooting pictures over and over. It was that scene in my mind. That that to me was journalism, at its greatest. They did not flinch. Uh, Larry was bleeding from the head. Uh, his eye later on was totally, the the white was totally red, but those guys did not move. And uh, it was an amazing act of courage. And I felt very sickly about myself. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, it was very violent. Uh, there was another riot uh, at one time, one other march that broke into riots at the time with people running throughout uh, Marquette Park. And there's a, a photograph uh, one of our photographers took. It was a great photo of uh, somebody getting kicked in the face as a, a black man kneeling down getting kicked in the face by a, a white power advocate. Uh, as he's lying down. Uh, so it was very violent uh, and very nasty. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure, uh, you know, it, it, yes, that's... No, that's that's very interesting. Uh, photojournals are usually a lot tougher and a lot braver than than most other journalists, I find. I, I can't speak for other people, but that, that day... Uh, Again, to me, that that was one of the great acts of uh, journalistic courage that I've seen. Uh, those, and to me, I said, to me, that was the very image of what journalism ought to be about. Let's go back. <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning for a second. And uh, so we we talked a little bit about your start, but why'd you go into it in the first place? Uh, well, I always kind of was rewarded for my writing in school. I always seemed to do well at essay exams. In Chicago? Yeah. I grew up in Chicago on the southwest side in uh, the Bogan High School community. 
and uh, always seemed to do well on essay tests, never did so well on multiple choice tests or other tests, and uh, always kind of got pats on the back for writing, and uh, I read a lot and uh, enjoyed reading, and uh, kind of just naturally came to it uh, at an early age, and I, I knew I wanted to write, and wasn't sure what kind of writing I wanted to do. Uh, it also happened to come of age. I had made my decision to go into journalism before Woods, Woodward and Bernstein broke out nationally with the Watergate stories, but I think that inspired a whole lot of us. I was in college at that time, uh, already a journalism major, uh, but I think that inspired a lot of us that we could maybe change things for the better. Uh, uh, so, uh, but but I just think it was probably one of the only things I could do was write and. And I found I had a knack for reporting. That's true, isn't it? That there was a whole generation of people who, if not their full inspiration, got a lot of inspiration from, from Watergate, from uh, Woodward and No Burson. doubt about it. It came out of a lot of the civil rights movement. Uh, a lot of the, There was some great reporting during the 60s with the civil rights movement. Uh, Vietnam War era created, inspired a lot of, I think we all, Read newspapers a lot, uh, those of us who were younger, because we knew we might someday be drafted and have to go to the war. So we, I think we were up on current affairs because it was a keen personal interest. And uh, there, was, there was a lot of great reporting in those days. Uh, uh, a lot of newspapers had undercover reporters who would, uh, in Chicago, I remember the Sun-Times at one point, started a bar uh, to find out if... Uh, Inspectors were taking bribes, and for uh, uh, funny enough, I, I did an interview with Pam Zekman, the reporter on that. Yeah, so okay. people should check that out in the archives. Yes, they should. Uh, but did, uh, actually, this is this is a tangential type of question, I guess. But did you ever go undercover? No, no. By actually, by I was by the time I was a reporter, I was told that was unethical. That, <laughs> the, the ethics on that had changed. Sure, that you you always identified yourself. Uh, so no, never did. Do you do you believe that? I think there are times it's the only way you can get a story. Uh, some of those stories in the early seventies, I don't think you could have gotten any other way. Uh, remember, there's a great story about uh, a reporter who went undercover in nursing homes uh, as a janitor, and I don't see how you could find out what's going on in nursing homes when you're not there, unless you do that. Uh, I understand that creates ethical problems because we don't want to deceive people. We're, in fact, our credibility as journalists, we always talk about that, although people tend to not believe that, <laughs> you know, we have any credibility. It, it matters a lot to us. So, uh, you know, we don't lie is uh, what we try to tell people. And uh, when you're going undercover, you're obviously lying. So I understand the ethical dilemma there, but I, I think it's a, there's a great tradition uh, in journalism in this country of going undercover to, to find out what's really going on. And so, so I don't think it's clear-cut. I think there's a place for it. Yeah, I bet the pendulum will swing on that at some point, you know, because the pendulum's always swinging. But That's right. But um, uh, there's some hell of a stories from back in those days. Well, terrific stories, yeah. So, um, so you liked writing and... Uh, you went to uh, Northern, is that right? Northern Illinois University. Anything, uh, anything noteworthy stand out to you there as far as your development as a reporter? Oh yeah, there were a lot of things. I started out. I wanted to be a sports reporter because I like sports. My my first choice as a career probably been to 
pitch for the Chicago White Sox, and they didn't have the talent for that. Although I think now I question whether I might have given their. But anyway, uh, so I went to sports writing. That was my first thing, and I uh, I decided not to become a sports writer based on my college experiences as a sports writer and editor because I found it more corrupt in many ways than anything I've ever encountered on any political beat, uh, uh, covering police, uh, uh, all sorts of things, than anything else. Uh, uh, college athletics was very corrupt, and uh, uh, there's there's lots of stories I could tell you. Uh, one of the key stories at the time, there was a very, at the time, famous basketball player at Northern Illinois University called Jim Bradley, who had been recruited... Uh, he made sport. He was was such a great recruitment for a small college that it made Sports Illustrated. Uh, they, they ran a big cover photo of him standing in a cornfield, out in DeKalb. Uh, he was not a very good student, to put it mildly. Uh, uh, became academically ineligible at one point, uh, but was a terrific athlete. Uh, uh, before Magic Johnson arrived on the scene, he was probably the most gifted athlete for his size I had ever seen. Uh, because he could dribble, which was unusual for a large man, and he was about 6'8", six, 6'9", six, uh, and he could pass, and he, he was amazing. And he ended up getting recruited out of college by uh, the American uh, basketball, the ABA, which was a rival to the NBA for a while. Uh, so he left, I think, in his junior year at Northern, uh, came back, uh, would visit campus, because he was a big man on campus to all the guys who were still there. I uh, came back for a carnival, and uh, the story is, I got it, was I got a call at my dorm, I was a sports writer at the time, we was covering the basketball team, and I got a call from one of the guys on the team who told me, some other basketball player had been shot at this carnival on campus. Uh, there had been some argument on one of these uh, things where you shoot basketball hoops and win a doll. The carny guy had taken out a gun and shot into the crowd, shot this kid who this, I was told, was on NI, Northern Illinois' basketball team. The carny? The carny, the, the guy who was running Yeah, yeah, the yeah, the carny shot something. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I had never heard of the guy who was shot, and I knew all the basketball players. And he said, no, we're down at the emergency room. All, we're all here, Phil, all the basketball players. We can't. I said, why don't you call a coach? He said, we did. He won't come down. Uh, I said, I, I never, are you sure this guy was a member of the team? And he said, yeah. And I said, I do not know him. So I had the coach's home number, so I called the coach. And this was about, I want to say about 1 in the morning, maybe 2. And coach was obviously, I it was, it was not quite awake when I called him. I said, there's this kid down at the hospital, the emergency room, and I'm told he's a member of the team. Coach said, no, he's not. Never heard of him. Hangs up. <clears throat> I drive down to the hospital emergency room, and just about every member of NIU's basketball team is in the ER. And these are all... A lot of them city kids from Chicago, pretty tough kids, and they're all crying. And, uh, and so I said, what's going on here? And they tell me this other kid had been shot, and uh, uh, and he was in bad shape. 
And as I was there, I'll never forget, a doctor came out. Somebody came out from the uh, ER area with the coat and had a tiny hole in the middle of the back of the coat, just the smallest hole. Uh, and th th this person died. It turned out he was from Detroit. He had been recruited into NIU basketball program by the head coach, but had been placed at a junior college because he was academically ineligible with the promise that eventually he'd play for NIU, uh, and the coach abandoned him. Uh, what happened was Jim Bradley, getting back to the original story, Jim Bradley had returned to the college. Uh, all the guys from the team were with him because he was such a big hero. He was shooting these basketballs into this hoop, uh, this carnival amusement thing. And his arms were so long that he could almost drop the ball into the soup. He didn't have to. He was going to win anyway. This guy was a professional basketball player. Well, apparently he won enough, made enough baskets to win a doll. The Kearney guy had refused to give him the doll, said you have to step back another five feet. <laughs> uh, Bradley reached over the counter, grabbed the doll, took off through the crowd. The Kearney guy had a gun, that he, the rifle that he kept underneath the counter, took it out, took a shot at Bradley, shot this other kid instead. Uh, and it was, uh, it turned out to be a major scandal. Uh, eventually did cost the coach, head coach his job. Uh, uh, but it was one of the saddest things, uh, that, that you could ever see. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of the epitome of the kind of, uh, corrupt things I'd seen going on for inside college sports for a while. Uh, and it wasn't fun and games to me anymore, uh, so I decided politics would be easier to cover. <laughs> a little less corrupt? Yeah, yeah. well, it, more honestly corrupt, actually. You know, sports is supposed to be all about sportsmanship and building character and high ideals and all that, and I found out it's very little of that, I felt. Uh, where politics, I think we all take a cynical view of that, even though we, know, we have high expectations, we... They're, they're lower than we have for Earth athletes. Sure. They're, they speak the same platitudes, but, yeah. you know, nobody believes the politicians and go. everybody believes the athletes for some yeah. reason. Yeah. Was that your first, uh, or is that the first big time you can remember where you had to call someone at 1 o'clock in the morning when, when it was clear yeah. that they would not be happy to hear from you? Yeah, yeah. I, actually, I didn't. My expectation of the coach was that, that either he, either this there was some misinformation out there or he would be happy to hear from me to, to know that something was going on. So I, I really did not think the coach would, I, I, I had no expectation that the coach would be unhappy. I had no vision of what sure. might've been actually happening. Uh, I was very confused myself, uh, uh, to get the call at that time of day that I did, because it wasn't something that was normal for the basketball player to be calling me up at that time of day. Uh, but uh, so no, it, but that was the first of of many times I confronted someone probably with news that they did not expect to hear. Yeah, that's one of the trippiest parts of the job in some ways, right? Yeah, you know? it's awful. Yeah, it's awful, and it also is can be quite amazing. I, I remember the first time I ever had to come on someone's door. You know, about their child being killed, uh, knocked on the door of a family in Beverly whose child had just been hit by a car and been killed. 
and I, I did it with great trepidation, as anybody should. And they welcomed me into their home uh, with great kindness. Uh, they were very anxious to talk about their son, who was kind of a child prodigy. And they, they, they were so kind to me. And uh, they emphasized to me that they wanted to talk about their son, that they didn't want him to be just a victim. And uh, it was it was a that was a good learning experience too, because it's not always the case that that some people make it out to be that people don't want you knocking on their door. These people wanted to talk about their child. Uh, they wanted people to know about him and how they felt about him, and uh, and so it was very educational. Uh, and and that's not the only time that's ever happened either. So. I would say about half the time that I made those kinds of announcements or calls, people were like that. They wanted to talk about their family member who had just been shot, just been killed, was was part of a news story. And the other half of the time, people don't, yeah, they, they'd rather not talk to you. Well, I'm more surprised when people don't talk than when they do, you know? Because people, people mm-hmm. have a story, everybody has a story to tell, and most yeah. people want to tell it. Yeah, I, I understand when people don't want to. It's, it's a, you know, having sometimes like this, done interviews, it's not comfortable. It's not a natural process to, uh, and, and if you realize that your words are either going out to be broadcast or going to be in print and you understand the impact of that, uh, that can be intimidating. So, so I, I've always tried to understand why people wouldn't. There, there have been, there have been certain news stories where it was, I found it quite baffling. Uh, there was a, a kidnapping uh, many years ago in the suburbs where, oh, oh uh, alleged kidnapping. The child was later found dead where the parents wouldn't come out of the house to talk. Uh, they did send a relative out. Uh, but at that point, it was really being emphasized uh, by the Adam Walsh story, which was a very famous kidnapping story that was important to get out there early on and let people know what was going on so they could try to help you, the public, and these people didn't, and that, I found that very troubling. But That's not the Dewalaby case, yes, is it? Uh, yes. Oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. I, had a, I talked to a reporter, the court's editor at the uh, Tribune now, Matt O'Connor, who covered that. Yeah. That was a crazy story. Uh, a lot of us came away, you know, people think reporters agree on everything. A lot of us came away, I think, with very different views on that story. Uh, I, I know, I, I felt like at the end I came away with a very minority kind of viewpoint. Uh, but uh, it, you know, reporters generally don't agree on anything. <laughs> and uh, that wasn't unusual in that uh, that we all came away with our own view of what was really happening and, and that, that, like I said, continued many years later. How long were you, uh, uh, during your second stint, you know, the 37 consecutive 37 years? 37 years, yeah. How, how many of those years were you a columnist and how many were you a reporter? I was a columnist. The 30, this is the 30th year of my writing a column. Three decades? Yeah. And when I came back, I was supposed to come back as a Chicago City Hall reporter. That's what I was hired for. But they uh, kind of immediately decided that that's not what my job would be, and I became the city edition editor instead. Uh, so I became the city edition editor for about four years, I want to say, and then I was the 
editorial page editor for a few years, and I actually started writing the column while I was writing the editorials, and, uh, and eventually transitioned from the editorial page to the news pages. <coughs> that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of confidence to put in a young guy. You know, to... we were all young guys. The amazing thing about the South Town when it became daily was it was uh, primarily. Uh, a bunch of young guys from the south who grew up either on the south side of Chicago or the south suburbs. Uh, a bunch of us who were uh, certainly under 30. A lot of us were in our early 20s, mid-20s. Uh, but also we were uh, uh, very uh, energetic. Uh, we worked uh, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, uh, six, seven days a week when we won't really... Because we were undermanned when the daily started, and uh, and we were working constantly to try to put out the paper on a daily basis. So uh, it was a lot of fun, and it was very tiring. Uh, but it was an amazing group of young guys uh, who did that. Well, it's just a. Uh, um... It's it's interesting, you know. The what, the impetus was that the Chicago Daily News went down, right? And right. Then... Um, what was the company behind uh, the South Town at the time? There was a uh, one man, uh, Bruce Sagan, who owned the the, the the South Town Economist, Economist newspapers. He had originally owned the Hyde Park Herald, uh, bought the Economist newspapers, which at that time were at 63rd and Halstead, headquartered there. Uh, moved it to 59th and Harlem with a very large printing plant, and it was his vision. Uh, to make it a, a to make it a daily paper to focus on the suburbs uh, uh, eventually uh, so it was not a company it was Bruce Sagan who eventually sold that paper to the uh, Pulitzer newspaper chain who sold it to a bunch of other people and had a bunch of different owners later yeah uh, whatever happened to Bruce uh, Bruce is still around he's a part owner of the Sun Times news group now. So he's uh, with like Rapports. Rapports, yeah, yeah. He's a part owner, investor in like Rapports. He still owns his uh, the Hyde Park Herald, which was his original newspaper. Uh, and he was, yeah. So he's he's still active. He uh, he raised money for uh, to create Steinow Steppenwolf's uh, theater uh, many years ago, and has been active in a lot of major city projects. Well, so um, you started writing this column after about seven years, right? Right. Um, what what uh, what was the impetus for that? It's what I want. It's kind of what I always wanted to do. Once I became a professional reporter, I wanted the freedom of that. The freedom, not only to report but to write. I, you know, as you know, the reporters are kind of restricted on how they can write things. You. Uh, you can't be very flamboyant in how you write. You can't. Uh, you shouldn't be stating your opinions when you write. Uh, you're assigned. You get assignments from editors. That's the way it works. When you're a reporter, you get assigned, and that's what you do. Uh, whereas a columnist, uh, you have more freedom to write, more freedom to pick your and choose your own assignments, and uh, and that's what I desired. And. Uh, and Mike Royko is certainly, uh, as anybody who's ever written a column in the city will tell you, he certainly was somebody uh, we all idolized uh, and looked up to. So, uh, yeah, that was that's who you wanted to be. You know, you wanted to try to be Mike Royko. Did you get to know him at all? 
Uh, not really. I met him once. Uh, again, this is another long story. Uh, it was after Harold Washington's death, and they were, uh, the city council was meeting, uh, a very contentious meeting to name a replacement for Harold Washington. There's new me news media from all around the country in the uh, Chicago City Hall press room, which isn't a really large room. And I don't know, it must have been easily over 100 reporters uh, in there with no room, standing room only. Suddenly the room parts, uh, there's like a, a wave of people starts moving. And Mike Royko comes walking in, and he was already a legend by this time. And, and somehow, magically, as I recall, a chair appeared in the middle of the room, and he sat down on it. And in this room where there had been no room to to even stand, there suddenly was this like ten foot diameter of space around him. As everybody was either so in awe or so afraid of him that they uh, they didn't want to come near him. But that was actually my only uh, the only time I ever had contact with him. Oh, that's 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 uh that's unfortunate, I guess, but maybe not. I, I don't know. People have all kinds of story. Reiko, I, I understand, could either be very charming or uh, or very rude and nasty. Uh, uh, my, my brief conversation with him that day, I found him to be very pleasant. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, so, but I think, you know, but everybody has different perceptions of people they meet, especially... And that, that's one thing as a reporter you try to learn. You know, you try not to judge people by a brief meeting because everybody can have a bad day. Everybody can have a good day. The people you see on the surface may not be who really is the person behind that surface. Uh, and you, you learn that. And so, again, you, withholding judgment is always a very good thing uh, if you're a reporter. Uh did it take convincing to get them to give you a column? Yes. Yeah, it took a lot of convincing. Uh, that's one of the reasons I ended up writing it six times a week, was I told them if they gave me the column, I would write it every six times a week, which nobody was doing. Royko was writing five, which was considered, for a news columnist, uh, an amazing event. And I think they believed I could never do that. And uh, I think that was part of the reason they gave it to me. Uh, but I think I had also earned it. I had, uh, I think I had already proven uh, my editorial writing and the columns that had appeared two or three times a week on the editorial pages that I was, I could be productive. But yeah, I think it was a leap, a major leap of faith. Was a there also aren't a whole lot of suburban columnists out there, and still aren't. Most suburban newspapers don't have news columnists uh, as such. They may have columnists who write feature stories, but very few have opinion columnists who will, uh, who, who also write off the news events of the day. And uh, so that was, that was a major leap of faith that uh, I got very lucky. How long did you do six? Uh, probably, I'm guessing I must have done six for about 15 years. Good Lord. Yeah, and then I dropped to five, which was still... I dropped to five around the same time Royko dropped from five to four. So uh, I felt good about that, that I was still, I, I felt like, you know, I might not be able to ever write to the quality of Royko, but I could outproduce him. <laughs> what, 
Was was that like a Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan thing where he oh. chose 24 to be one better than Jordan? Uh, well, for my aspect, it, it was. There was a com- certainly a competitive element there, but I also felt like uh, there was also a kind of a, uh, a feeling of, well, if, if I'm running six times a week, and I uh, and if, let's say I, I miss two or three, it's not going to be as bad because I'll still be hitting two or three. Uh, it wouldn't be as bad as some columnists write like three times a week. If, if you miss once, though, so you, you've only had two good columns that week. So sure. I always felt if I kept on doing it, I, I my my chances of being uh, successful more often than not were better if I did more. Uh, and then after a while, it just became kind of a habit. You know the the south suburbs have a lot of uh, rough and tumble type of communities. You know no, there there no. are a lot of. Uh, yeah. I mean the south side has always been more rough and tumble in general. The city and the and yeah. the. Uh, you got any interesting stories about that? Well, there you know yeah, it's, it's very diverse actually. I mean our our coverage area is uh, extends from uh, basically uh, you know Homer Glen and Lamont and the kind of the southwestern end, out to uh, Frankfurt, uh, New Lenox, Mokina, uh, very kind of uh, upper middle class communities uh, uh, who have very nice, for the most part, very nice homes, very good schools to uh, out east to the Indiana border. It includes communities like Fort Heights, uh, Harvey, uh, Dixmore, Robbins, uh, that are tend to be very poor. Uh, uh, the schools aren't so good, uh, the home values are much lower, uh, and have much, uh, uh, certainly, uh, my more uh, heavily minority communities. Uh, so it's a, it's an amazing juxtaposition to cover, and I've done this all my career, cover Orland Park or Timley Park one night and then go out to uh, places like Riverdale or Dalton or Ford Heights, the next, and see uh, the problems. People are just as uh, uh, just as outraged by whatever problems they may be. But in Orland Park, it may be uh, barking dogs or a giant fence someone had built, or large economic development that's coming in. Where if you go out to these uh, poorer communities, they're begging, trying, they're trying to get any kind of mom and pop store they can get to come in. Uh, they don't have enough money to pay their police officers. Uh, my first time out in Robbins, I, I went out there because there was a, uh, there were a lot of Orland Park children being arrested buying drugs in Robbins. Uh, and there were a lot of People saying there were children on, in Robbins standing on street corners selling drugs openly. And so I went out to Robbins to find out why. I talked to the police chief who told me at the time he was making about 30000 a year. Uh, he said the kids starting on a street corner selling drugs in Robbins uh, could earn that much money. And he said, how, how do we tell these kids? He goes, my officers, were, the officers, patrol officers were making about 15000 He said, how can I tell these kids? He says, I tell these kids not to sell drugs, and they tell me we're making more than your police officers are making. Uh, go away. Uh, and that, that's the kind of problems you run into in, in all sorts of levels out there uh, that people really can't comprehend to some extent. Uh uh, and, and there was, 
you know, we'd interview candidates in editorial board meetings for mirrors. And I remember one year there must have been about eight candidates for mirror in Orland Park. Uh, and, uh, and we were interviewing them, and then we'd interview candidates for mayor in some of these poor communities. And I remember coming away and telling my colleagues, you know, the worst candidate for mayor of Orland Park would be the best candidate for mayor in about a half a dozen of these other communities. And that's, that's another entire problem is you have quality of people. We have lawyers, doctors, accountants, bankers running for office in some of these more affluent communities, uh, where in these other communities you, you have people who are unemployed uh, and don't have uh, college degrees and, and really just don't have the knowledge to run a community, uh, in addition to not having uh, the financial background uh, support for their communities so they if they you know they have 10 times the problems and not even half the ability to deal with them and go to Orland Park or Tinley Park and they have professional management people in addition right in addition to their elected officials who are very educated and have uh, diverse backgrounds to draw upon you have very good professional people who are highly paid to help them so it's a very different world, and, it, and you can find this if you drive down 159th Street. I've always said it would be an eye-opening thing to drive down 159th Street uh, through Homer Glen, through Orland Park, uh, out through uh, Tinley Park, Oak Forest, and then you cross into Markham and Harvey and on east. Uh, and it's a, you see a lot of different, a lot of different things. So yeah, rough and tumbles, putting it mildly, uh, what you see is a lot of incompetence, a lot of neglect, because those, those people don't get the attention from either news media or elected officials that, that people in more affluent areas get. Then it's, it's, uh, it's been one of the things I've tried to do with the column, is, is focus attention on the uh, problems of these areas and... Uh, and I have to say it's been uh, disappointing uh, to a great degree. Uh, I've seen elected officials thrown out of office repeatedly to to be replaced by people who promised they would do better, uh, who who didn't do much better. Is there a is there a single? Uh, this is almost one of those stupid questions, but is there is there one of those? Uh, is there a single biggest disappointment? Something you champion that hasn't happened or you'd like to see happen? Uh, no, I'm not sure there's a single one. Uh, I, I, I've come to believe that the, to, to a, these south suburban communities that have really been hammered by, uh, uh, you know, there, were, there was, first of all, the, the home foreclosure rates and unemployment rates in some of these communities were at recession era levels before the Great Recession hit. Uh, the numbers that people were citing with horror for some of these white communities during that era uh, were nor the norm in uh, these minority communities that I've mentioned. Uh, so th th there's kind of a confluence of problems that hit them. Uh, unemployment, home foreclosure, uh, the property tax rates in Cook County are so high, and uh, the, the border of Indiana that, that butts up against Cook County, if you cross that border into northwest Indiana, you will see a booming metropolis uh, full of a lot of people who used to live in the south suburbs, uh, a lot of business growth, a lot of development, 
And in those other communities on the Illinois side of the line, what you see is a, a, a lot of storefronts that are vacant, uh, housing values that deteriorated, uh, uh, and the, the communities more impoverished. Uh, so what you need is, I've come to believe now in most recent years, is a really focused kind of effort uh, to help develop those communities. I don't think any of them can do it on their own. They don't have the ability uh, to jumpstart things. And there are too many factors uh, that, that are influenced by the state and Cook County uh, that they can't overcome. So you, what I've called for repeatedly is is some kind of coalition that I would hope would have been headed by Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle to create kind of a, a group comprised of the uh, great academic institutions of Chicago, uh, of urban, urban studies, uh, business leaders, uh, political leaders from Cook County, uh, to kind of develop a game plan for this area of the South Suburbs. Uh, to provide resources, federal money, county money, private money, and a plan, and maybe institute it in one of these suburbs that's poor. Focus there, start bringing in some development there, and try to use that as a lab to, to spread out throughout the area. I've become convinced it's the only way you could really create major change out there. Uh, but I've also advocated for a third airport because I've come to believe that uh, the airports are economic generators, so I've repeatedly campaigned for uh, development of an airport near uh, Piatone. But that, a lot of that, my position on that came out of a realization of how decisions get made about such major economic development projects. Uh, uh, the, the decision to expand O'Hare, uh, which is wasting billions of dollars in federal money, uh, was a bad decision, and almost everybody in aviation agreed was a bad decision at the time. Will not seriously improve capacity at O'Hare. Will not uh, seriously improve uh, arrival and departure times throughout the country. Uh, the area out near Piatone was chosen many years ago, almost 30 years ago now, uh, because of its possibility for growth at the time. Could have the airport was supposed to be twice the size of O'Hare, if you can imagine that. And it would have become that the goal was to make it the leading airport in the country. Uh, and that the impact of that would have been tremendous. But the, the airlines, American and United, dominated the gates at O'Hare. They didn't want to have any competitors. So they lobbied heavily to prevent that from happening. The city of Chicago controlled all the... Um, first of all, I got landing fees uh, from Midway and O'Hare Airport. Uh, they con controlled the concessions at the time, so they were able to determine who got the concessions, and it was very politically connected. There were lots of jobs tied to that. They didn't want to lose that control of O'Hare and Midway, so the city of Chicago did its best to stop it. And the proof of that, the ultimate proof of that, comes at one time the FAA listed the Piatone project among its top programs in the country for development. It was the highest priority project. We had to build this new airport because O'Hare was getting overcrowded and it was at the center of air traffic in the country, right? Suddenly it disappeared. Right about when things started to move to create it, it, it just disappeared from the list. 
and uh, the FAA came out and said that it could not approve, it, it, it took the project off because it lacked, it lacked regional consensus. Somebody told me, Phil, you know, that there's never, there's never been a regional consensus on any airport. People, cities build the airports pretty much in this country, and that's the way it happens. And There's no regional consensus, you just do that. <laughs> and so I called the FAA and asked them if they could tell me uh, if they'd ever used this regional consensus standard before, which really implied that Chicago had to agree. If Chicago didn't agree, there was not going to be another airport. Sure. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, okay, uh, tell me where. He said, we'll get back to you. About a month passed, called the FAA again. He said, you haven't gotten back to me. Oh, sorry, we'll get back to you right away. I, it just slipped their mind. Another week passed, no call. And this went on for a while. And finally, after about the fifth follow-up from me on this, this is now six months later, I, I was, no, there, there's never, ever before in history been a regional consensus required before an airport was built. That tells you why there was no third, there was no third airport built. Uh, and so there were, there were these, all these circumstances that surrounded things, uh, plus the fact that the, the decision to really expand O'Hare did not even come from the city. Mayor Daly wasn't pushing for O'Hare expansion. came from a bunch of uh, U.S. senators and other politicians whose wives got held up during a, uh, I think it was a Democratic National Convention. Uh, there was an air traffic bottleneck uh, at O'Hare, and flights were delayed. And these senators and other politicians became very angry uh, about the flight delay at O'Hare. So they held hearings in Chicago. Uh, John McCain was there. I don't remember if he chaired the hearings. I think Rockefeller, uh, Jay Rockefeller, chaired the hearings. Uh, and they basically put the city on the hot seat for not having expanded O'Hare and demanded that O'Hare get expanded. And the city said, sure. And the goal, there's paperwork that I found, uh, the, the city of Chicago's consultants advised them uh, in order to delay the, expand, the, the construction of Piatone Airport to, um, to do a number of different things to delay that, including Daly at one point announced uh, support for a Lake Calumet Airport on the southeast side. Uh, which would have taken uh, a number of homes from people, uh, was not a very popular idea. Uh, but uh, that was one thing the consultants of the city embraced. Yes, say you'll do this, even if you don't intend to, in order to delay this other project. And uh, that's what was done. And that, that, was, that was a consultant's recommendation to the city of Chicago. Yeah, uh... <laughs> I don't realize airports had so much politics, but I guess it... Oh, huge, huge politics. I guess uh, I guess that makes sense, you know. And they're giant economic engines. There have been all kinds of studies that, that show that entire regions grow out, up. Regions that are abandoned, regions where nothing is happening, they grow uh, because of airports being built. Uh, they, they, they attract enormous populations, they attract business growth. Uh, and, uh, you know, even in hard times, uh, airports have been a good investment. 
I went to an airport once in uh, northern Mexico out in the desert in Sonora. We were on a trip. I was working for the Phoenix New Times, and I accompanied a reporter uh, who didn't speak Spanish. I do. Yeah. And so um, we wound up at this at this airport out in the middle of nowhere, and there were a couple small planes and a few armed guards. and. Yeah. And uh, it was basically a drug airport, I'm pretty sure. But I remember we showed up, and you know, it was it was this crappy little airfield and in the middle of nowhere. And they had a big international airport sign, and it was the funniest thing. I'm like, international to what? You know, America? You know, right across the border? You know? And it was a, uh, it was fun. There was a lot of economic, uh, there was a lot of econ- of uh, economic growth being generated at that airport. <laughs> I can tell you that. But it was kind of fun. Right. But uh what what um uh when you look back on your career um what are you proudest of what do you uh what are your highlights i'm, I'm proudest of stories where i think i gave a voice to people who otherwise people would not have ever heard about uh, uh one of the and, and one of the things uh, well it was a woman. One day, a woman walked in. This is when our office was at 59th and Harlem in Chicago, and I got a call from our front desk that there was a uh, elderly lady who had walked in who needed help, and uh, I went to the front desk, and uh, it was a woman who was in her 70s. Uh, it turned out she had been, was being thrown out of her apartment. Uh, she could no longer afford to rent. Uh, she was living on a $420 a month income. Uh, her, her her rent had gone up to $350 a month, and she couldn't afford it. And it turned out this was uh, uh, one of many apartments she had been thrown out of in her life. And uh, I wrote a number of columns about her predicament and uh, the plight of people who face homelessness, uh, it was an education for me to, to be with her. Uh, her average daily meals consisted of uh, pork and beans, hot dogs, oatmeal. A uh, big feast was chicken wings, if she could have it. Uh, sweet potato. Uh, that, was, that was it for her. Uh, uh, she, uh, she was a well-known figure in the community. Uh, she hung out in public libraries uh, a lot, uh, and I, it was an education, and I followed her for many years. Uh, she was very uh, strong-willed, which angered a lot of people, but she felt like she wanted to live her life the way she felt she deserved to live it, which people, most of us don't feel like that. We feel like if somebody is homeless, if somebody is poor, they ought to be willing to do whatever we tell them to do to better their predicament. And she was adamant uh, to the point of uh, making people who knew her very angry, including me at times, that she was living her life the way she wanted to on her terms. And I tried to educate that. That gave me a new interest in the homeless uh, that I didn't have before, and a different perspective, and a desire to kind of try to address the issue uh, uh, there was a, uh, as a result, there was a apartment complex for the homeless eventually built in Country Club Hills, uh, and I'm, I'm sort of proud of that. Uh, I also stood up for uh, women who were victims of domestic violence. The uh, Crisis Center for South Suburbia was trying to build a new uh, 
a new shelter, expanded shelter, and uh, they met with some resistance in uh, payload cells, which had been their home. And eventually they uh, relocated to uh, Tinley Park and uh, have a, a much larger facility and are able to help much, many more people today. Uh, I was able, there was a lady who uh, lived at Oak Forest uh, who uh, had uh, launched a social service program out of her house. It was a part of a church project that she was part of. Uh, where it was Christmas time one year, and they decided they were going to, like many churches do, they decided they were going to try to feed people who were hungry uh, and clothe people who needed clothes. Uh, she found out the need was so great that she decided to make this take this on full time with some other volunteers. And her reputation became so widespread for doing this, this group, that when I encountered her, her home and garage were full of clothes, full of food, full of furniture. The people would just drive up. Her word of mouth had spread that this woman helps poor people. And people would just drive up with truckloads of clothes, furniture, food, and dump them off at her house. And so when I encountered her, her, her garage from floor to ceiling was loaded with boxes of stuff for her home was the same way, and she had no longer had the space. And she had reached out to me and said she needed a she needed to find a space that they could operate out of. And she was hoping to get United Way funding. And uh, I was very dubious as reporters are cynics. I was like, hey, this, "There's got to be more to this." And uh, she said, I, "She recommended I call the state social service agencies to ask about her." And he wanted me to call the state to ask about you. And she said, yeah, just ask them. Just go to the local social service, all the state agencies in the south suburbs, ask them about us. Uh, the organization she was calling herself uh, Together We Cope. Uh, was the name she would given her organization. And I started asking people, and everybody, I got the same answer everywhere. That, that everybody, all these state agencies, whenever poor people would come in who were desperate for help, would tell them, we can't help you right away because we're a bureaucracy. You'll have to wait. But go contact this lady, and she'll give you whatever you need, whether it's a rent check to help you stay in your apartment, clothes. Uh, amazing thing to, to see. that. And, and so I started writing about that. She eventually uh, got some donations, started, uh, got a, some office space, uh, got some space for to store her things in Oak Forest, eventually moved out to Tinley Park. They're now the largest social service agency in the southwest suburbs. Uh, she passed away shortly before they really took off, uh, unfortunately. Her name was Lorraine Cook. Amazingly gratifying. That woman never sought any money for what she did, really never sought any recognition for what she did. It was all about helping other people. And that kind of thing, to be able to to reach out, uh, to, to get contact with people who just wanted to help their fellow human beings with nothing to gain for themselves. Uh, uh, there's a lot of satisfaction in being able to do that. There's a story, um, we're getting close to, to, to where I guess I have to wrap this up, but there's a story, um, I forget what the details were, but somebody told me some incredible story that I don't remember much about except it involves... A South Suburban Woman in 9-11? Do 
Do you know what I'm talking oh, about? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, 9-11. Uh, went over to Midway Airport on 9-11. Well, it wasn't a South Suburban woman. Uh, it was a woman from uh, New York, uh, as I recall. Uh, but anyway, went to Midway Airport after 9-11 happened. Uh, the planes that hit the Twin Towers. Uh, and I ran into a woman who was, uh, there were a lot of people stranded, if you recall, the uh, flights were canceled after that, so there was, nobody was flying. And so I was asking anybody if they knew of anybody who had been on any flights out of Boston. And I ran into a woman and said, my husband was on a flight out of Boston. And I said, what flight? And she told me. And it was one of the flights that had been hijacked by terrorists and crashed. And uh, so I, I had to inform her that her husband was likely dead. She had no clue at that time. Uh, so I, I don't know if that was, uh, and if she later on was, we, I did several stories about her and her anger at her treatment uh, and, and things, but she wasn't from the south suburbs. Uh, well, you kept in touch she, with her, right? I, I did several columns on her earlier. Yeah, she sued uh, several different agencies, and yeah. Oh, that that's a that's a pretty terrible story, you know. <laughs> it, it was a terrible story. It was a terrible story. Um, that's you... some that that's some of the things you end up doing. I, I, I mean, I, I think she was grateful that I was I, I was there for her that day. I mean, I did. I didn't just do a hit and run. I spent quite a bit of time with her that day. And uh, do you know what ever happened to her? Uh, no, I don't. No. Uh, well, so um, do you have any closing thoughts you want to share? Uh, just that I wish uh, I wish the public had a better understanding uh, for what it is. Uh, that journalists try to do, uh, I think we do a lousy job. The worst job, maybe, that any of us do is explaining what we do to people, uh, how we do it, and how much we care about it. And uh, just like any profession, any career, they're, they're bad people, they're incompetent people. Uh, but there's an amazing amount of dedication uh, from people who have devoted their lives uh, to covering the news for newspapers, and uh, and uh, as a citizen of this country, I think it's really important uh, to have people out there who, who care that much about getting things right, uh, informing the public. I, I feel like we're losing something that's been as important to this nation as the court system has been, uh, Congress, uh, free elections, uh, uh, the press has been there since the beginning, uh, and I feel like it's changing, uh, maybe it's evolving into something better, but I don't think we know, and I think the public needs to be vigilant, uh, just again, uh, just like they would be vigilant if people, someone was taking away control of the courts from them, or denying them free trials, or free elections, uh, and I don't think they have been, and it's their loss ultimately. Because without the without the press doing its job, uh, you can't know if the government is doing its job, and that's always been the fourth wheel here. You had the executive branch, uh, the legislative branch, the courts, and 
unofficially you've had the press, but that's been part of the First Amendment, guaranteed. And uh, like I said, it's changed dramatically, and there have been other changes in it, but I, I, I just think people should be more concerned, should be more protective, combative, and uh, the public needs to be advocates for its own cause here. I've always said that, that ultimately in this country, we decide our own destiny. Uh, people like to blame governments. It's our government. It's our president. And ultimately, it's up to them to make sure that the press, the, the news, uh, remains impartial, uh, remains fair, and remains active. And if, if, they, if they're apathetic or if they're even enemies of that, which a lot of people are today, they, they consider us enemies of each other, which is outrageous. I, I just think it's very dangerous uh, for the future of this country. Well, on that very, very happy note, um, I, I do want to say one thing, which is there there are, um, uh, obviously I don't know all of your stories, uh, not by a long shot, and uh, but there's some really good ones that Michael Miner recounted in a, in a story about you in the Chicago Reader. It's very kind. Which I would suggest people should read and check out because there, there is some, you know, it's probably a good uh, corollary to this, you know, a good supplement. But, um, uh, you know, it's really, uh, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. So, Enjoyed it. Good luck. Good luck to you.